Welcome to another episode of Decided Heart Conversations. Sonia and I are so honored, honored to be joined by Rachel Friesen today. She is a powerhouse when it comes to helping moms and families figure out life in general. But in what she's going to be doing for us today is doing, I know we're feeling anxious. We're getting ready for back to school. And guess what? Many of us are doing remote learning. So she's going to give us five tips to help us be at ease and own remote learning. Rachel, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us. Can you give our listeners and viewers a little, like what qualifies you to be here, woman? Why are you telling us what to do with remote learning and not pulling your own hair out? Well, thank you, first and foremost, for having me on. I'm honored to be able to share some of my experiences and certainly my expertise that has come about in this area because 20 years ago, I fell into social work and since then have been everything from a youth treatment counselor to a school-based therapist to a school social worker, as well as working in residential treatment centers. And most recently, I was a behavior systems coach in the school system in which I was going into classrooms and helping teachers set up their classrooms um, around behavior expectations and really um, improving the behavior of the students, behavior management systems and such. And so in the spring of 2020, when everything, you know, did a 180 in our world, um, we, what me and some other coworkers of mine have done has really said, what does the physical environment look like in a remote setting? And so I can bring that evidence-based and some of the um, best practices into the home environment and say a lot of it is applicable. And in this day and age, we need those tips and strategies. So I'm willing to share kind of what I have gleaned over the years and certainly put forward um, to all those moms and dads pulling their hair out going, how are we going to teach our kids at the kitchen table, <laughs> right? Should it be the kitchen table? <laughs> no, absolutely. And that, I mean, speaking of kitchen table, in your five tips, the very first thing is setting up the environment. Tell us about that. What do we need to know? Absolutely. And if for some people that need that imagery, you can imagine walking into a classroom. And classrooms are set up in ways that add structure and certainly add um, the dynamics of which kids can learn best. It's not over cluttered, it's not overcrowded, but sometimes as parents, perhaps we're thinking we need to do that and we don't. I actually say avoid the noise. Um, albeit my back wall is not where my kids work. This is a little cluttery in the, in the sense of what we'd want to do is get our kids into an environment that reduces the distractions, right? So that we have a space that's actually set aside for learning because now your home yes, is a cafeteria and it's the entertainment center and it's the play area, but to have an actual set aside space, whether that's a, a table off to the side, whether it is, it can be the kitchen table in those circumstances, you don't have a lot of space, as long as it's also really clear that this is the time. Our environment also has time included, right? Schedules. So if this is the time we do learning, we're not eating at the kitchen table. However, if you have the capability to have a separate space, having a separate table, separate desk area, it's more beneficial for kids to understand that that's where I do the learning and then I can go back to the kitchen table to do the eating. But along with environment, not only reducing the clutter, you don't have to have everything up on the wall like you might sometimes assume some classrooms look like in a, in a physical school, um, but certainly having some point pieces. So 
In this day and age, dry eraser boards work wonders. So does, so does just a scrap piece of paper. You don't have to go out and laminate all these great new posters because we know that kids all learn a little differently and we are probably, in most cases, teaching or helping aid more than one child. So we're talking about having some aids, some visual aids for a first grader, a third grader, a seventh grader, you name it. Um, and that gets really cluttery. So it's okay to have maybe just that space whether it's a small dry erase board or even just a piece of paper that you're jotting down the ABCs or some like visual aids that are going to help supplement their learning. Um, but back to schedule, I think schedules are really important to that physical space too when we talk about environment in that a schedule sets up the structure. And we know evidence-based is that um, structures, starting high structure and being tight easier to loosen than if we're really loose, it's harder to tighten. Um, I say that at the same time as saying your structure can have some wiggle room though. So you can have some like tight areas where you say absolutely at 10 o'clock every morning we need to be doing this. But you could also say between 10 and 11 we can get this stuff done. Because um, sometimes we're, we're almost too held to schedules these days, you know, can I get an amen? So that, um, <laughs> So that, you know, even kids need to know that there is some wiggle room. And in a classroom back in the school building, teachers might have some expectations within the hour to get a couple tasks done, if it's math, in whatever order the kid needs to do it in, or to make sure and structure in those breaks are key. Don't forget breaks. I think there's this mentality with parents I've talked to that think, oh, well, my kid did school for seven hours at school. So I need to figure out how to do seven hours at home. And one, that's not realistic. And two, at school, they spent, you know, five minutes lining up just to go out the door to gym. And they spend five minutes corralling the kids to get them to sit on the carpet. You can toss out all that time because you're going one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two with your, with your kids. And in that case, you can really reduce the amount of time they're actually learning. Mm -hmm. A really good rule of thumb is for every um, grade in school is an hour of learning. So if I have a first grader, I'm going to embed one hour of learning into their day. And it doesn't mean it has to be an intense um, one full complete hour. It can be 15 minutes, take a break. 15 minutes, play is learning, let them play. 15 minutes, you know, take another break. 15 minutes, snack time. So all of the, the, when I say kind of the rule of thumb, again, third grader needs three hours of learning, so on and so forth, it can be split up as long as you kind of stick to a basic structure. And structure meaning, again, that there's going to be a system where we wake up and the student, your child, knows what to be expected. The same way that I kind of go through, you know, my like routine to wash my hair or put on makeup, it starts to become such a habit and we are creatures of habit. So um, again, that schedule is really gonna help and um, in the environment alone needs to have the schedule embedded in it. Does that make sense? <laughs> and Rachel, if I can also just ask, I have a rising middle schooler, so a sixth grader, and how do you, in terms of setting up the environment, work with, and it's age appropriate, engage with the student to say, how would, how would you like your environment set up? Like, is there that exchange? Do they have that buy-in in creating that space? How do you do that? And depending on the age too. That's a good question. I think it's a question lots of parents probably have on their mind because um, we kind of battle that old balance of when to empower and when to take charge, right? And there is a balance. And I, I, I call that coaching, right? We're not dictators and taking charge all the time, but we can't enable. So our kids kind of run amok. But the coach kind of says, here are the guidelines. I need you to set up your space in this area. But then 
you know, the moment, the motivation or the encouragement from a coach comes from, but you can sit on the floor or you can sit at your chair. I have a, I have both my children have ADHD. My younger one more so needs to be standing. So it's a matter of where do you want to stand? Do you want to stand at this table or do you want to stand at this desk? And so he finds places around the house or he found a place around the house that worked for him. Um, and then it's a matter of how they want to set it up. So I do have limits around, no, you can't lay on your bed to do your work because I know that they don't necessarily do their best learning, but the floor is different. There's something about just laying on your, on your stomach, um, looking at a screen in my case with my kids that do remote learning. It's a lot of screen time um, that, that gives them a different type of uh, equilibrium, but laying on their bed and upside down and doing, you know, a zoom call with their teacher, that's where we have the limits, but can they kind of get, you know, spread out on the floor? Absolutely. So kind of giving them limits within choice. <laughs> I, so I have a question, but I also have something I guess I really want to bring out of what you just said um, too. One is, um, I hear you saying something and I run into this a lot and I bet Sonia does too, where all three of us are coaches, right? In, in different areas, the preconceived notions. Here's what I heard you saying instead of you dictating and determining and saying, this is the way you're going to learn. You have to sit, you have to do that. And I hear parents doing this all the time because they were taught that they had to sit still. They believe that's the only way their child can learn and they get frustrated and it becomes this battle if they're not doing it the right way. Instead of, I love what I'm hearing is this flexibility of, no, let's actually discover what your right way is for you <laughs> right so i love that i want to make sure we just really put an exclamation point on that the other thing i i was going to ask you really quick so i'm i'm a high school parent is there that timing that you're talking about does that turn off at because i can't imagine sitting my kids down for 12 hours in a day right so where where does that sort of one-to-one -one thing stop oh like the age kind of the rule yeah, of thumb. Yeah. Oh, I would say, you know, up until about the sixth, seventh hour. I mean, obviously you're right. It does not extend into the, the ethers of, you know, wherever, right. wherever. But I would say that um, don't forget two things that you brought up. Don't forget two things. One is that we're all taking a crash course in how to be teachers slash supporters slash aides to our kids. So there is, even in the school system, this sense of how do I get to know my students and how they learn best. So. I'm just gonna give everybody like the forgiveness, you know, blessing, like it's okay if we screw up at first trying to figure out how our kid learns best. So if we said, yeah, we want you sitting and then we realized when they, you know, moved to the floor and I was about to tell them to sit, they were actually doing better on the floor. It's okay to kind of forgive yourself in the situation and say, all right, let's about face because it worked better that way. Um, and then the other thing about um, older students and, and what you're saying even about extending into 12 hours is don't overlook learning in so many different ways. I think I keep seeing more of that creativity coming out on social media platforms where people are saying, hey, it's okay if they're not sitting in front of their you know, Google Classroom for five hours, if they are learning how to read a recipe and learning how to you know change the oil on the car and if they can figure out the bus route to get somewhere like there's so much more to life than just that academic learning that we are now capable of providing in a home environment that we didn't have control over before so kind of enjoy the control that you have to say i can kind of supplement their learning a little bit or add to it in our in our environment when things might crash because the reality is we're not perfect at this and we weren't trained in, like I said, we all took a crash course in being a teacher. So it's all right if you're just kind of 
fumbling along as long as you're fumbling forward, right? <laughs> so I guess that almost leads us to, and maybe we touched point uh, touched a little bit on your um, tip number two. Yeah, expectations, setting expectations. Uh, I think these are really critical. I think um, what I do when I coach parents is oftentimes find out that we are always in this, re always is a, a strong term. We are often in a very reactive mode. Like, oh, I forgot to tell you, don't do that. And oh, you shouldn't have done that. And the kid's like, how am I supposed to know? And so when we establish expectations up front, it can clear the path to a lot of miscommunication and you know, doing, doing it the wrong way, but you didn't know you did it the wrong way. And so what I mean by expectations and what I mean by keeping it simple is three to five really clear, perhaps, I don't want to call them character traits, but values maybe that your family really embraces around learning. Really basic ones I see a lot are we're going to be respectful, responsible, and safe. And then everything can fall into line when it comes to when we do our math, how are you being safe? You're not, you know, poking your sister with a pencil and, you know, are focused on your own learning. Um, how does it look to be respectful, right? I'm listening to the teacher on my, you know, remote platform. How is it to be responsible? I have my materials ready before math starts. So you're applying these expectations all the time throughout the day and it's just redundancy and that's okay. Right? Those are kind of the values that, again, you can bring forward to your home environment now that you have some control over it. Um, but expectations really are the thing that then you can fall back on. And so when the kid, the student, the child doesn't, you know, follow a certain expectation, you can say, remember, our family is, our expectations are, and then you bring up those three things again. Um, it really just helps everyone know where they're focused on instead of being like, I didn't know, I didn't know. We just kind of keep realigning it to those three words so we're not getting lost in this, like, new language, new way of doing things when you have almost a broken record. A broken record is mom just saying the same things over and over until it sticks instead of being like, well, we should do it this way and tomorrow we're going to do it that way. And ah, you know, everyone goes crazy. Um, another thing with expectations is routines. Like I said, I can get up and you know, without thinking how I'm going to wash my hair or put on my makeup. And some of us even drive to work and we don't think about it anymore because we kind of drive the same way. And that's a routine and routines become habits. And so with routines, kids need them too. You know, we're kind of creatures of habit and that really helps. And so in the home environment, you may or may not already have some established routines when it comes to morning routines, breakfast routines, getting ready for school routines. Those might like look a little different because they aren't literally leaving your house, but they could still look the same as far as when we wake up, we have breakfast, we get ready and we head to the kitchen table with our backpack, right? But if we already know how to establish those home routines, what we're doing now is we're going to establish school routines. So what does it look like when you have to work by yourself and mom's over here working because she has her own job or she's busy with the other child? So what does it look like to work independently? What does that routine look like? What does it look like when you do have to maybe get on a platform like this, like Zoom, and listen to your teacher? Again, some expectations or a routine with my kids are that they're not flipping up upside down or they're not just one eyeball in the in the screen, right? So that there's their faces forward and, and they're nodding and they're not muted or turn their video off. I mean, those expectations, yes, can be set by the teacher on the other end, but you're there to also support and bring your own values into now this new learning environment. Um, other routines, again, might be when you have to ask mom for a question. Right now, my kids know that I'm on a Zoom call, so it's, it's, they don't bother me when they can hear me talking because they know I'm on a call. So that routine is I will come check on you. Um, now, we're not full on in 
school right now, but as of the spring of 2020, I would set a timer as a working mom that every hour I would go check on them. So I would make sure that they knew I was coming as a routine that mom's going to come every hour to check on you. And, or if they have a question, their routine was slipping a piece of paper under the door. Now I have a nine and a 12 year old that are capable of doing that at that length of time. Um, they also know that if they are done and it hasn't been an hour yet, what their other backup plans are. So you have like back to the schedule, you have your to do's, the things you have to do. You have your must do's, but then you can have your can do's. Like, is there a list somewhere in your house of like the things your kids can do if they're done? So we have like a little painting project and we have a um, STEM project and my kids have a trampoline. I mean, there's a variation of things that they can do while they wait for mom's timer to go off or mom to be back. Sometimes I've even had my timer go off. I go and I check on them and I have to tell them to take a break. So like you guys have been working so hard. I actually want your body to physically get up, move around, do jumping jacks. Um, and sometimes it's a set routine. Like it's going to be 10 jumping jacks every time the timer goes off. And sometimes it's a, a choice. What do you guys want to do to go up and down the stairs? You want to go, you know, li literally take a bike ride around the block. I mean, there's a variation of ways you can embed into the routine. The stuff I already mentioned from tip number one, but into tip number two around routines, if that makes sense. <laughs> Well, it, it does. I, I wanted to just ask you along that same line. I, I know one of the things I've heard you talk about before is, okay, mom is going to be on the phone. I want you to understand this expectation. And so because of it, let's go ahead and practice and reinforce that behavior. And so tell us about how can we ahead of time, instead of being like, oh gosh, are they going to come or are they not? How can you set that expectation and practice with them? I'm glad you brought that up. I do kind of put it into four parts. So one is you have to model it, right? You can show them what it looks like because they need to be like, what does that mean to sit here or to do that or to wait or to, to put the timer on? By the way, timers are amazing, right? They kind of like are a, a system of their own. No one can fight with the time. So setting timers for you do this for 15 minutes, no one can really fight with a clock. They can fight with me. I don't want to do it anymore. But if I'm like, oh, the timer's still going, super easy for almost any age. Um, but when it comes to modeling it first and showing them my, what I expect instead of just telling them to go do it, right? We're not as much auditory learners as we are visual, especially the younger age groups. Um, but then abs absolutely teaching it, not just sitting there and going, this is what it's going to look like, but why am I sitting here? Why am I doing this? Why am I getting up? Why am I doing the first part, the second part, and the third part in that order. Like steps are really important in routines. And then to understand them, kids, you know, kids since the age of two are asking why, why, why? It's a great time to explain it to them. Why do we do it the way we do? Why do we do math first before we take a break? Why do we do, you know, whatever the routine is, it's really important to teach it and then practice it. So then they are going through it and they are, you're either prompting and reminding them, remember, this is how we're going to do it. Um, but muscle memory, muscle memory is what got me to work, you know, back in the day, because I just didn't have to think about it. I would just drive and at the stop sign, I'd take a right. That's muscle memory. That's the stuff that we just don't, riding a bike is muscle memory. So the more our kids can practice it, the more it just becomes so routine and we become creatures of habit. Um, so I think the fourth one though, besides, you know, absolutely um, modeling it, teaching it, um, practicing it and, and prompting it. I mean, certainly kind of prompting is simply reminding, kind of telling them ahead of time, being preemptive. But the last one is reinforcing. And reinforcing is really the critical fourth piece because if any student is doing something correctly and we're not letting them know you did it right or you did it wrong or, or however, they're going to be lost in that, well, 
I don't, I don't even know, right? We all kind of need some sense of, does this feel right internally, of course, but externally, we might need that reinforcement first. And so um, as a parent, reinforcing comes at, and not even as a parent, as a teacher too, um, evidence-based practices support a five to one ratio, meaning that five positive um, compliments, acknowledgement of effort, um, just simple acknowledgement that they're doing what they need to do, um, five of those for every one corrective statement we make. Because the more corrective we become, the more it becomes so burdensome and almost like, you know, we know what it's like to constantly be told we're doing something wrong and being critiqued. It feels a lot different than we're being told what we're doing right. And that creates behavior momentum. So um, like the carrot in front of a horse, as you, you know, receive a little prize, you keep running towards it more and more and more, right? You're like, oh, I, this feels good. Mom tells me I'm doing the right thing or mom's acknowledging that I'm, you know, sitting where I'm supposed to sit or, or whatever the case may be. Um, I do say lightly, compliments are not all the positive things you need to say. Sometimes we overdo it with a good job, good job, good job. And then kids have a hard time thinking for themselves whether they did a good job or not. We're get bombarding them with all this positives. So um, I would also just encourage people to use acknowledgements. Like, I see you got your math sheet done. And you didn't put any judgment on whether that was good or bad. You just noticed something because, again, they followed the expectation to get their math done. What happens, though, internally is that kids start to go, I did. I got it done. I followed the expectation. And they can internalize that pride instead of us having to put the pride on them and them looking for external validation. Mm -hmm. So it's important to, um, Definitely acknowledge and acknowledging effort. There's actual research out there that has shown that when acknowledging performance, you did good or bad, versus acknowledging you're on the right track, you tried really hard, the students that were acknowledged for effort continued to work hard. The ones that were told good, oftentimes were like, okay, I hit my, my mark, I'm good, or told bad, why even try? And, and they get stuck in this really wonky place as opposed to you're heading in the right direction. And that's what we want for lifelong learners is let's all be working at something, shooting for a goal and, you know, trying and, and achieving more, right? And so, I, just, I want to emphasize just because my, the students I work with are junior, seniors in high school. So I get them at the very end and you can tell the difference between growth mindset and fixed mindset. It makes it's profound in terms of what they're willing to engage in as a young adult. And I just have to give a little bit of kudos because um, the encouragement versus praise is like what, what you were saying is when we do give those reinforcements, it's really about the effort or what we observe. And Hillary has taught me in terms of what are those acknowledgement statements? Like what are the words? And um, she does this virtue training and it gave me just more vocabulary because I might be seeing it and thinking it, but I don't know how to like use those words to translate that. So I just love that you really did hone in on the growth versus fixed mindset because um, I've seen it on the other end and it can get really scary as a parent. They remain children or they won't want, want to take the risk, right? Because not, they're not going to be good at it. So why do I take the risk to do that? Yeah, that's so we did awesome. not talk about this beforehand. So yeah, <laughs> yeah no, no, it's, it's out amazing. there in the world. <laughs> no, no, it, it, it is. It's a real thing. And, and I appreciate that so much. And it's, I mean, it's, it's so, uh, it's a great reminder and it's affirming and, and all at the same time for some people, it may be new. Uh, but I think that it's so easy when we get pulled off our own. Uh, this is a strange time for all of us. And it's not just strange for our kids. It's strange for us. We're all dealing 
with something. And so these reminders and the support from one another is so important because we're growing too, right? We, we, we're figuring it out just like they need. And we probably need to remember that like, Sonia, good job. You're growing with that. That's awesome. I see the effort. Hey, Rachel, way to go. I saw that, you know, we need to do probably do that for each other just as much as we're doing it for the kids. Right. And that sort of leads to your third point and, and third tip is really about the rewards. And you, you've kind of crossed over that already quite a bit, but just to put a finer point on it, there really is the goal setting that has to take place. What does yeah, that I, mean for you? Yeah, I think that third tip is around setting goals and they're becoming more of the common language in our you know, communities and our societies these days around short-term and long-term goals. But um, helping children, especially at younger ages, understand how that works until waiting till they're, you know, in co a college course or a professional and being like, oh, what's a goal? Um, it's just really sometimes being explicit about what they're already doing, right? I have, I have a, a boy, my son, who is a baseball player, and he's just like, I want to go out and just throw the ball around until I'm like, oh, I can just make it explicit for you that why you why you want to throw the ball around is because you want to get better at fielding in on the game. So once I kind of just wrap it up for him, he understands it's a goal. So it's not that we have to reinvent like all these big goals. I want to kind of, again, give everyone the forgiveness. Like you don't have to go all out because it sometimes sounds like, Ugh. but they do need to be realistic. I would say that's a huge criteria. If you've ever heard of a SMART goal, you can look up S-M-A-R-T um, goals on Google and it kind of gives you some criteria around, you know, it needs to be timely and realistic and whatnot. But I think um, the important thing about just bringing this into the remote environment is having some short-term goals for students and mamas <laughs> or dads, right? Because in this sense, we're all kind of feeling the overwhelm and overwhelm launches everything out here and doesn't really put it into compartments until we go, okay, what's the compartment we need for like what we need to get done in math. And sometimes we learn the hard way by trying something out and going, okay, now I know I reach too big and I need to bring it back. Um, or we can just start out with like this week, we're just going to get through how to get through our expectations and routines. And I will also kind of preface this, that in the school setting, teachers are already coming back let's say in the days of old, um, in that August, September time zone of knowing that their kids have lost information over the summer. So we don't have as much retention. So please parents, forgive yourselves for like not thinking that on day one, you're gonna get your kid to be, you know, jumping two grade levels in reading. Reality is, is that there's a lot of review that happens in those first few weeks. And that's a good time to understand where the goals maybe should be set. You don't have to necessarily have a goal on day one other than getting through the day or getting through an expectation or routine or setting up that environment. But if we're thinking, or if you guys are already jumping to, oh, what's the academic goal? Um, don't feel like you need to set that until you really have a good grasp of all the other things first. Um, when it comes to goals though, I think it's really important that you're, you're rewarded, we are, I, by nature rewarded by rewards and consequences. When I drive down the road, I don't want a speeding ticket. I don't want that consequence, but I might drive so well that I lower my insurance, right? And that's a reward. Um, we're rewarded and consequenced all the time and that's what motivates us. So our goals can have those rewards at the end and they don't have to be these big material rewards. They can be intrinsic, right? I think as, as grownups, we become more able to find that intrinsic, like I just felt really good by doing that. As kids, sometimes we need to have the sticker or the star chart to signify that something has happened to build up to that significant thing. Um, and the significant thing does not have to be material. It's certainly 
is maybe the go-to kids want the toy they want the video game they want the ice cream but honestly if you were to um again there's research behind this if you were to pull kids they want your time and energy <laughs> and we have a lot of it to give so do we want to give it in the negative you know barking and and griping or do we want to give it in the awesome we made it through a day of learning now let's spend 15 minutes playing a board game together or or you want one-on-one -on -one time with mom reading a book or maybe it's just you get 15 extra minutes at bedtime or maybe you just get to pick the dinner, the meal that we have tonight at home that we're going to make together, because that's another learning experience, but it doesn't have to be this exuberant anything. Um, certainly building on rewards, because sometimes if you start too big, it's hard to get smaller, right? If we're like, oh, if you get through one math worksheet, you can play in Nintendo for the next five hours. Well, it's hard to get your kid to do two math worksheets tomorrow without thinking that they get to double the reward or if they get half a worksheet done and they throw a fit, then you're like, um, well, do I have to double down the reward? So if you start small, you can always build, right? And starting small, believe me, kids are very motivated by high fives and a funny dance from mom. It does not have to be a lot to start small. Um, but you can build from it and you can build when you kind of scaffold what you know they're capable of again getting kind of a good sense of those first week or two of how they learn and how they learn best might give you a sense of man i was rewarding you for reading 10 pages when you are totally capable of reading 25. so then you kind of have to stretch that reward or you know the end the end game here um so don't be don't be shy to make sure that it starts small and, and and can grow and that you scaffold even the expectations around that reward and then give yourself a reward. Sometimes it's just mama, I'm just going to make it through the day without yelling at my kids or I'm just going to see if I can make it through the day from eight to 12 and then I'm going to go like doing my own stuff and then I will spend time with my kids from 12 to four. Um, which Hillary makes me think of when you mentioned about uh, your son in high school and kind of having some time. I forgot to mention that sometimes parents are thinking that um, back to that environment, the schedule, even the school's section, section is parents are thinking, I have to set my kids up from 8 to 3 p.m. because that's what they did in school. Mm. Guess what? You have tons of flexibility at home. So if mama needs to be on a work call or she physically needs to go to you know work from 8 to noon, you can shift your school day now. You have flexibility to say school at our house actually starts from 12 to 8. And again, it's going to be a conversation with your, your school or the platform that your possible school is using. But in some cases, um, teachers are willing to flex and go, we get it. Your home environment's totally different than the school environment. If you guys need to do school at night or if you need to do some in the morning, take a break in the afternoon and do the rest in the evening, there's that flexibility too. Yeah. I have to put a fine point on that really quick because I love what you just said. We talk about critical conversations in a larger scope and usually it's related to work, but I never thought of it until you said this. So much of our life we spend like being victims to the circumstances, right? And, and we aren't in this and it's like, oh, and I have to do this and I have to, did you actually write to your teacher and ask them, hey, can we be flexible and do this? Like, just don't stop and only be told what to do. Be an active, engaged participant in that, right? I, I think that, it, what, what do you have to lose? And we're at a critical place in education, let alone our society, in thinking outside the box. So teachers are also open to like, I didn't think of that. Let's think outside the box. So if you can bring ideas I mean, be ready to get turned down as well because they're also in their own overwhelm and thinking that they've got something and you, you heed to the you know, specialists. But at the same time, when you can bring forth an idea that works for your family and teachers, 
most times they're willing to go, oh, thank you. Glad you're doing your part because we, they are trying to partner with you now. They are absolutely trying to partner and they are hands down very grateful for any parent that can help behind the scenes as, as much as they can. Um, that's certainly a privilege right now when um, there are a lot of parents that can't, right? They just don't have that capability and they have to be in other places, so. So, I mean, just, just the first three tips, I just feel like we're really coming to that full circle, which is your fourth tip. So engagement, and there's so many ways we already learned on, on engagement. Um, and then it's huge word in terms of college admissions. It's more, more important than it is the word passion. Um, engagement is key. So I'd love to hear more about your fourth tip. Well, when I've been speaking, I've really been speaking kind of like that K-12 range and certainly that K-12 model. Um, engagement was the huge um, word, word of the spring 2020 when we lost a lot of students to being at home behind the screen and or not having the screen to be in front of to engage with said teacher, right? Um, or classroom. So part of this is certainly on the teacher to engage with whether they are live Zoom, um, asynchronous or synchronous learning, whether it is um, video learning, but we know that there's just such a wide variety of learning auditorily, you know, like from our, what we hear to visually what we see, but kinesthetically is what we can do, right? And so I think about like even younger kids, but all the way through 12th grade, sure, is how can we engage them at a variety of levels? It cannot just be all paper and pencil. We've learned that in education over the years. Um, but it certainly can be like standing up and reciting things. It can be walking around the room. It can be, you know, my kids doing stuff with chalk on the sidewalk as part of showing how they have learned the stuff, right? Novelty is key right now. It's like, what's the latest, greatest, best thing? Um, it doesn't mean throw out, you know, everything we have done with education, but there are so many great um, apps and websites out there that are now saying, do these math problems we'll keep you engaged because if you do these back to the goal setting if you get five math problems right online then the reward is you get to play this little game or this funny little animation walks across this screen and that is very engaging because it adds all those different senses so if you can think about how you can engage your students with lots of senses more than just the eyes or the ears right like lecturing does not work for younger kids especially but even i mean 12th graders, how many of them just want to sit through a lecture, right? They need to have that hands-on, the, the, the teaming or the, you know, project-based learning where it's a multitude of, of your senses. Um, engagement also comes from, again, I said novel, but anything that's high interest. And certainly uh, when we're talking about, you know, I have parents ask me, like, how can I get my kid to read? That's a big one. Like my kids hate reading. They never want to read, you know, finding those high interest items, right? Like, okay, so I have a, a, a nine-year-old who loves hockey. He hates to read, but did we find every book that was ever made and written about hockey? Absolutely. Will he read him? Yes. Now, when he also tells me, um, I don't want to read, I'm going to grow up and be a hockey player. I have to quickly spin that whole, like, how am I going to get him engaged to think, well, how are you going to read your contract? when you make it to the NHL, right? And so he's like, oh, I guess I have to learn how to read. So somehow we have to kind of find those back doors to get that interest up and keep it up. And yeah. then sometimes they don't know what they don't know. So you're like, hey, let's look at castles. You don't know anything about castles. And then they find that they do find a new love of learning somewhere else. So the engagement can come from what they already know or continually putting new things in front of them and absolutely building off their strengths. So engagement can certainly come from your strengths because when you're always told to try something new, 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 it's hard, hard, hard 
But when you're told, you already know how to do this, let's add a little bit to it, it's so much easier. I can do that, I can do that until it doesn't feel hard, even though you're doing everything in the end, right? That makes sense. Sonia, really, really fast. It's so funny as we're, as I'm listening to her, I'm like, Ooh, she should have been a fly on the wall during our Ikigai conversation. Totally. Right? Oh yeah. There's always that overlap. And I guess what I was thinking about too, is why engagement is so critical. It's foundational. It's not necessarily, I mean, one way is how do we help our students get engaged, but they start learning all of these tools so when they decide to engage themselves in a new experience, they have tools on, oh, I could try it. It's problem solving, really, right? But I think about college admissions and why engagement is so important because they are looking for students who are taking initiatives. So they're engaging on their own and it's because we've been able to model it when they're young and show them these very different ways of entering this experience and engaging. And yeah, with Ikigai, it's all just kind of aligned and integrated. It, it does. So really quick, Rachel, the Ikigai uh, is, I don't know if you know much about it, but it's a Japanese, it's the Japanese art of what gets you up in the morning is basically, it's the idea and, or, or I always say what brings you joy, but it's really, it can be very small, but it's, and it's not life purpose. It's literally daily purpose. What makes you happy on a day-to-day -day basis. And so Sonia and I, we interviewed somebody before a little bit about it, but I, but just to, again, finer point, exclamation point, parents, it's so important. And, and it's not just parents. It's all of us understanding what brings someone else joy and being able to access that joy when they're in needing to get something done or they're sad or they're whatever that is, or they've shut down is so important. And I think we, it's so simple, but I'm just saying it out loud again, and I'm going to keep saying it out loud again. That is one of the first things we should try and, and figure out about our kids, our spouse, our best friend, what brings this person joy, because that could be what helps them to continue to light up and, and do and live their purpose. Yeah. yeah, I would also like just to, again, make it a little simpler for the audience about engagement is that there's really kind of engagement comes in, I would say, three areas. One is skill. And that kind of touched on that. If you have the skill, you can you can kind of bounce from that or build from that. Um, the other one is mindset. Right. Certainly having that like I can do this and certainly around self-talk. Like teaching your kids self-talk is critical. And I've done that from the get-go with my kids. I ran a race with my nine-year-old when he was about five. I, I'm a runner and it was a 5K. And at the very end of it, I heard him out loud being like, I can do this. I can do this. And I was like, yes, okay, it's working. So it's not just a one and done. It's that broken record I, I mentioned earlier around mindset is through that self-talk and what you're telling yourself, because our brain can tell us lots of things and we don't have to listen, but we can certainly talk back and say what we want it to hear. Um, and then self-reflection, I think is kind of part of that, that second piece around mindset was after the whole day is done, how can you self-reflect and say, how did I do and how can I do better? Or how can I do it differently? And what did I learn today? Because that also adds to the engagement piece later. Like, well, if I learned it like this, then I'm going to do it a little different tomorrow, or I'll engage better if I'm sitting on the floor as opposed to standing at this table. Um, so I think self-reflection is really big. And then the third one of those three pieces engagement is influence. And influence is certainly around our enthusiasm. As parents, if we're showing up being like, I know this stinks and it's going to be a hard day and 
the kids are going to feel that and they, they parallel you instantly. They match you. And so if you're like, this is going to be awesome, even if you don't mean it, and we're going to have so much fun and we love reading, you know, that enthusiasm will carry you much farther. If you set the tone with that influence that you're creating, again, my influence factors with my kid are, do you want to be in the NHL? Well, then these are all the things you need to do. So we go off of all that stuff around their skills, their mindset, and then what's influencing that engagement. Well, and that's sort of, I mean, quite frankly, a lot of this is setting you up to maybe not have to worry quite as much about the fifth tip, but it still is really a part of what's going on is this whole social, emotional learning aspect of things. So help us out with number five, which is coping skills, sister. This is the heart of the matter. I mean, this is where my heart beats the most because as a social worker, um, this is just what I see come into my office on the regular is the emotional piece. And I think we cannot, um, I don't think I know, we cannot overlook the emotions that our students, kids and ourselves are going through. Um, I just read recently that we're all in a grief process. This whole COVID-19 has, has put us into what people used to term the grief cycle. And it's no longer a cycle one and done and you're, you've gone through all these emotions, it's over. It's actually this wicked star and we bounce around to all these different feelings. And so if we can recognize that our kids are grieving the loss of what was normal or their school or their friends, um, some that can return to maybe a hybrid model in this remote setting, um, are going to grieve the fact that they're having to wear a mask and they'd have to sit six feet apart from other people or that they can't have lunch in the cafeteria. Um, we also might be going through a lot of frustration ourselves as well as our students, our kids that are frustrated that mom doesn't teach the same way that Mrs. Jones taught and she doesn't know what she's talking about and, and I'm frustrated because I don't know what I'm talking about either, right? And so <laughs> there's a frustration and then there's that anger piece of like, I'm just mad it's not the way it used to be. I'm mad I don't get to see my friends. I mean, there's lots of different feelings in the whole grief cycle, including acceptance. Like we might have some really chill kids that are like, I can do this. This is great. Let's just roll with the punches. We talk a lot around our house about being flexible thinkers. Uh, huge problem solving skill, right? As Sonia was saying, problem solving is just like the real like linchpin of life. Like if we can learn how to problem solve, that's it. Um, but flexible thinking is just the day and age. We're humans and we're social and things turn and adjust all the time. So coping strategies are how we cope with the, the feelings that get so big that they start to um, affect our daily life, right? It's like, I'm, it's okay to be sad or mad. And I tell my kids that all the time, it's okay to have all these feelings, but it's not okay to be mean. That's our big one. It's okay to be mad. It's not okay to be mean. That's our little sing-songy one. Um, but sometimes it just has to be with whatever it's starting to affect their life or other lives. So it's okay to be sad. It's not okay to like sleep till noon or it's okay to be sad. It's just not okay to, you know, wallow in it where you're, you know, giving off this vibe to everyone that comes by. I'm like, I don't like you or whatever it is that's affecting other people. So coping strategies are the things we can do to get back to that balance. And I always say coping strategies follow these two rules. So you don't have to know these perfect coping strategies that are out there. There are no perfect coping strategies. There are thousands of coping strategies, but as long as they fall into these two rules, you can, you can kind of claim them. One is it has to be safe. We know that again, when I say you can be mad, you can't be mean. Being mean is not safe. It's not safe to other people's emotions, et cetera. And the other one is that it has to help you feel better and not worse. So sometimes as adults, we might drink to cope, but it doesn't make us feel better. It might make us feel worse 
the next day, or we become angry when we're drinking. Um, as kids, I always use the examples of, well, I'm really, really mad and I punch my brother and I feel better, but it wasn't safe. So if it doesn't meet both those criteria, they're not a good coping strategy. Or I might punch a pillow, much safer than punching my brother, but it's, I'm getting more mad because that physical output actually makes it worse. Some kids, they need the physical output. Some kids need the, what can I do to, to ground myself, take deep breaths. So Again, you have to be in touch with yourself. You know if you're kind of like a heavy blanket sleeper or a light blanket sleeper, that's kind of like the, do I need to get the energy out or do I need to calm the energy? So coping strategies can be anything from taking deep breaths to listening to music, to journaling, to going on a run. Um, again, there are so many out there that what I've done with my kids is I've thrown out ideas, I've asked them for ideas, we've come up with a list so that they have a go-to menu. So in the moment that there's a crisis and they're high, high, sad or high, high, angry, we're not going, oh, what were those coping strategies? No, we kind of go to the list or mommy has them memorized by now. Um, so I'm like, remember your coping strategies? One of my kids is to go play the piano. Another one is to go get a hug. Like, he's like, I just need a hug. I'm like, awesome, let's come on in for the hug. So I think it's really important to um, have those in advance. Don't wait for it to happen. Don't react. Certainly start talking about them now. And if you don't know what they are, just start being aware. What has helped me? I can give suggestions. As a parent, it's hard um, to look at your kid and say, well, what mommy does is, because kids are like, whatever, you're not me. Yeah. But if I can say it in a way that I say, other kids I know like to blah, 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 then they can hear me better, right? And there are a bazillion books out there on feelings of sad, feeling happy, feeling angry, feeling frustrated that end with a lot of coping strategies as well. I have a, a list of, I call them bibliotherapy books, but um, kid-friendly books from age, you know, two to 12, two to 18. Um, but certainly finding your, your, your coping strategies are key and having them available already and not necessarily having, um, another thing I would say is not always having material coping strategies. So if it's, I need this stress ball, and I'm driving around and I get upset in the back seat, um, fighting with my brother and I don't have the stress ball, you can't be down and out. You have to have some coping strategies that just generally come with you. Like I always do this little roller coaster breathing exercise with my boys. You can take your hands with you everywhere, right? So whether it's these coping strategies we use that you can take with or whether you can have some physical ones in your home, great. You know, the rocking chairs or the, you know, the heavy blankets or the stress balls are great as well. Wow. No, it's so, so good. What was that, Sonia? So much learning. It's like, I we can just transcribe this and then you have your book. <laughs> right, right, Rachel. Here, here you are. Done. Done. I love it. No, it's been so helpful and I appreciate it so much. And for those who are, I mean, these are five strategies, very concrete, very actionable. We're going to give two challenges in a second. Uh, but again, all of us here, we're, we're, we're coaching in different aspects, and you are so good at what you do in this area. If parents want to hear more and learn more about your coaching and how you can help them with this, how do they find out about that? Um, sure. I have a coaching and consulting business called Momentum, spelled like momentum, but of course we're going to pronounce it for all those mamas that need some help. It's momentumcoaching.live. And um, I'm available to actually do virtual coaching these days. So I've set it up with Zoom capabilities and Marco Polo, which is an app to do video messaging capabilities in which I can provide that more personalized, customized, because I know that we can all go and look for the 
the one video online or the one article online, but they don't always apply to that specific kid of yours or, you know, that specific issue that you have. Um, so I really want to kind of customize it for, you know, the mama or dad that really needs help with those issues that are trickling up. And of course, this day and age, we're finding more we didn't have to deal with before. So um, thank you so much. I'm just honored that I was able to be a part of this and share with your community and, and provide some support and um, knowledge to, to spread out there. I just would, would actually like to just add that um, I love the quote, there's no way to be a perfect parent, but there are thousands of ways to be a great parent. And this is an imperfect plan. And if you walk into anything knowing that it's imperfect, it's okay. And you can craft it as you go. And again, I'm just going to keep forgiving every parent out there over and over. You are forgiven for the mistakes we learn along the way. That's just parenting and that's life. So give yourself space and grace in this, in this whole COVID remote learning, teaching your kids at the kitchen table. <laughs> Yeah, now they have a village. They can find us and they can find you for that extra support and to practice on how to for how do we forgive ourselves. Um, so can I can I share my the Facebook challenge, Hillary? Please. So we have two challenges for our viewers and listeners on the Facebook page, Decided Heart Conversations. Um, we're gonna ask you, and I'll remind you on a post, to going way back to tip number one share what your remote learning space will be for this upcoming fall. What does it look like? And I mean, for me, I'm going to, I'm going to share my own. I want to share both my space as well as my student's space. And it's really cool because I feel like we're co-office co-workers. Um, and so I'm going to do that. And I'm going to ask our listeners and viewers to, to take that risk and share their space as well. Hey, snap a little picture, right? Yes, I love that. And on Instagram, we can't share pictures uh, as the as the comment. So instead, on on um, Instagram, we're going to ask you at Decided Heart to do a a little uh, idea, a creative idea of a non um, material reward for goals that we're setting, which goes really to our tip number three, right, Rachel? And so I love some of the ideas that you gave. We, it doesn't always have to be material. It can be a dance party. It can be 15 minutes of a game. Decide what creative things have you already done or will you do? Because, hey, again, we are a village. So let's share them and then we can steal each other's ideas. <laughs> so with that, this is going to be, I know this is going to be an amazing year because we will make it so. And there are people like you, Rachel, that we are so grateful for. And Sonia, that, you know, we are out there to support one another and to guide one another. And I'm so glad that before everything gets started, you are here with us, breathing life into us, giving us grace, giving us forgiveness, and telling us it's going to be okay. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. We're good. We're good.